everybody. It is episode 96 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Steve and Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm fantastic. Hello, podcast world. Glad to be with you. We are always glad to be with you. We've got plenty to cover today in terms of our main topic, given that we had a bunch of people racing this past weekend. We're going to be talking about sort of how do you think about assessing a race post-race and how do you take those lessons and then roll that into your next cycle? Whether you hit your goal or not, we're going to kind of talk about both sides of it including some things for, you know, how to pick yourself up if you didn't hit your goal. So that's what we'll be covering in the in the main section of the podcast. We do have plenty, Steve, plenty to cover with our opener with lots of current events to get to, starting with, of course, Chicago Marathon recap. We had a pretty awesome race <laughs> at Chicago. The particularly on the men's side, the the women's side Basically, Bridget Koski yeah, blew the doors. Pretty much got that one wrong, she didn't we? Blew we, the doors we, off it. I had her in second, yeah. So I, I get some credit there, but but man, I don't think we predicted she would run what she had, what she would run. So we'll start there on the women's side. Bridget Koski got the win in two eighteen thirty five. She ran basically a ninety second negative split. She split one ten at the half. Then came through in two eighteen thirty five, so pretty much right at a ninety second negative split, whereas everybody else after that was at a minute, two minutes, six minutes positive split, and so, damn, Bridget. <laughs> yeah, she's now on the list of potential gold medal. She's in that crew of four or five or six that we are looking at as being gold medalists, in in my opinion, at at the twenty twenty Olympic games in Tokyo what do you say yeah I agree I mean I think with that kind of a negative split it tells us that there's more there if she'd run a more even split race there may have been another minute maybe 30 seconds there which puts her in the conversation exactly with all of those other top women as you've said so nice work I mean I picked her for second I didn't think I'd see this kind of a time from her especially the way she did it, pretty much running solo the last 10K or so of the race. And, and yeah, so why not? I mean, why couldn't she compete with the Dibabas and the Katanis of the world with that kind of time on a day that wasn't perfect? I mean, it was humid, a little bit warm, rainy, so the streets were slick a little bit in spots. So that tells me that, you know, if she'd had even better weather then she could have, you know, and, and had paced it a little bit more aggressively, she could have run something in perhaps the two seventeens, which puts her in that, that same conversation. So nice work. Chris, Richard. one question. So what would have happened if we had a healthy Jordan and a healthy <laughs> Amy in this race? What do you uh, think? Rampant speculation. Yes, let's just just do a little aside. Rampant speculation. It certainly would have set up perfectly for an American record chase, right? It definitely would have for both of them. As I, I mean, this is completely <laughs> ridiculous speculation, but you know, I, I had a feeling. I don't know for some reason I had this good feeling about Amy Hastings Crack. Yeah, she we, would yeah. somehow break two twenty in this race, and that Jordan wouldn't get it done for whatever reason. So. You know, I think this the table is set for for at least one of those two to get under 220 
perhaps sniff the American record because if both were fit, they both they both would have been capable of doing it. And you got to you got to like a 50 50 chance of at least one of them getting one of them getting there, especially since that pace. The pace went out pretty much perfectly for it. One ten oh nine for the first half for the top women. So it was just pretty evenly paid. It would have been evenly paced, slight negative split to get under that American record. And I think one of them, and in my vote would have been Amy Hastings Scrag, would have at least broken two twenty and become the second woman ever to do it. Maybe sniffed Dina Castor's American record. I I still like to think that that was probably safe under any scenario with these conditions. But I do think potentially one of them could have gotten under 220. I think they might both have done so. And um, I I think that it's sad. I really wish we could have seen them because it would have played out perfectly for that kind of role. Um, they weren't going to win. Um, Bridget Kosky just blew the doors off this race. She just she just put herself in, in my opinion, just in the mix with everybody else, with these other women who are, in my opinion, I mean, I think that the 2020 Olympic Games marathon is the most intriguing it, on both the men and women's side. It's just so intriguing now. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think I don't know that it would have been one or the other. Um, I'm I believe both Amy and Jordan are capable of getting under 220 and both capable of getting the American record. Um, I feel like at this point in time, especially with Jordan's now two times having injury related issues that it is. The third time, time's the charm. We really need. She really needs to get online and have a good day the next time she races. I think, um, and I do think we haven't seen. We I think we will see Amy sooner than, um, you know, Boston next year or the spring. I think we may see her uh, sometime soonish. It would be awesome too. But in fact, I wouldn't. It's probably a little late now for New York, but there's still a potential that that could be the case. You so never know. You never I mean, know. That's, that's a big name. Right. And, and that's the question though then is, is how does that play with Shalane? Um, but I think that ultimately wouldn't it be amazing also to see her at CIM. There's not a big level race. There's not as much money to that, but if she wants to go out and blast a time, she could probably get a lot of help. But what a great ass feather in the cap that would be for the CIM California international marathon um, race directors and and producers of that race, it would be great. But, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Even Houston coming up um, in late January is an option. But hopefully we see Amy soon. Um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. I agree with you. I think we would have seen an American record. I think we, we, we probably wouldn't have seen an American record, but I think we would have gotten two sub-220s sub, two sub if they were healthy and ready to go the way that race played out. So in second, you accurately predicted that Rosa Dereje, the Ethiopian who had won Dubai, would get second, and she did. I had her slotting into fourth, so missed that one. But I did get at least close on Florence Kiplagat. She ended up fourth, and I had her slotted in at third. And so we did We did okay. You know, we both had kind of two two pretty close, and but no, neither of us really expected Shere Demise or Demise to to be in the mix. She came back also from a solid result in Dubai to end up third to round out the podium as, a, as another Ethiopian, which I guess makes me at least have to say, okay, maybe Dubai can translate <laughs> and it isn't as much fool's gold because we had those two Ethiopians. Especially with what plays out in the men's race too. Yeah. But interestingly, all three of those ladies on the podium are 
20 to 24. So Young will be around for theoretically a long time and could potentially compete for the podium in Tokyo. So we will see. As it relates to the Americans in the field, Sarah Crouch ended up sixth. She finished in 232. The two that that we talked about, Laura Thweet, first of all, ended up DNFing. I, I haven't seen exactly what happened to her. And then Gwen Jorgensen, of course, ended up 11th in a 236, well off of what she had hoped. We never really got a time from her that she was shooting for, but she did say afterwards that she was very disappointed in the time and that I think she said the first words were to her husband were something to the effect of, why am I even doing this? <laughs> you know, if I'm going to be so far off of what I wanted. And so let's talk about Gwen for a second. You know, she seemed, she seemed in the press conference where she said, look, I'm going to give myself 24 hours as I always do to basically digest and, and feel the negative emotions of this kind of quote unquote bad race for her. But then I'll move on and I'll keep doing work. So she seemed to have a pretty good perspective on how this fits. But a 236 is certainly nowhere near where she needs to be to compete to make the team, much less win a marathon gold, as she has stated is her goal. I know I gave a little bit of thought thinking about what a time for her might mean in the preview show. But what do you think this time means now that you've seen it? 236. I don't think it means anything. And I'm going to read... Um as a as a sort of a, a little, you know, teaser for people who are thinking about our podcast training group and the kinds of things we talk about beyond just the training pieces that we do with our podcast training group. I'm going to read my quote unquote hot take that I uh, that I posted there when uh, one of our athletes asked about what we thought about Gwen, and I said, "Here's my hot take on Gwen. It's really not that hot a take, I get, but I guess hot takes are a thing. So here it goes. Gwen getting her is getting her ass handed to her in training." She's tripled her mileage, extended her quality sessions, added the best in the world as her training partners, and her coach couldn't give two fucks about a gold medal in the triathlon. He wants a gold in the marathon, and he's using Gwen to either help Amy or to be an insurance policy. But don't sleep on Gwen. I'm telling you, she could, it could, she could be a shit show three months before the trials and still be in Tokyo for the big dance. And if she's on the line at Tokyo, watch out. That girl shows up when it counts. Um, and that's really how I feel about it. I said, I don't, I do think that this is going to be really tough and a bitter pill to swallow, but I, I don't think it's a referendum on her. I did see something a little bit later posted where somebody was talking about Shalane and her new role potentially as coach for the, um, Jerry Schumacher's Bowerman Babes group. And her statement was sort of, well, I don't know that Gwen is really built to be a marathoner. She didn't say it in all those words, but that raised my eyebrows a little bit, Chris, and made me question a little bit because Shalane knows what she's talking about and she's there with her day to day she sees every session she does she talks to her in intimate detail and if if Shalane is willing to sort of is sort of like I'm not sure she's a marathoner it makes me question a little bit what what do you take what's your take on well I agree with you as I said in the previous show I don't think her time means a damn thing and that remains true for me you know, yeah, her time wasn't great, but she learned a ton about the marathon with this result. Probably first and foremost, how to fight through when the going gets tough. She also said in her press conference that she felt like she managed the nutritional elements well, that her at least her energy levels were good. It's just her legs won't wouldn't go. And so 
So she learned something there in terms of at least how to manage her nutrition over the course of a race like this. So I think she'll take her lessons and keep moving forward. She also referenced in her press conference the fact that in her first ITU triathlon race, she got lapped on the bike and basically got pulled off the course. So she essentially couldn't even finish that race as she was getting into that sport. So, you know, she's been through this kind of situation before where she got her ass handed to her and then had to bounce back and keep working. As it relates to Shalane's comments, though, I mean, I said it after after Gwen ran 15-15 in the 5K earlier this year. I said, well, why wouldn't she go for the 10K? Because if you're looking at the women's events for the U.S., the 10K is probably the soft underbelly in terms of where you have a chance to make a team with Molly Huddle moving up to the marathon. You've got potential there that's probably greater than any of the other the other distances i mean look at 800 miles steeple completely stacked right it's like you could almost name those teams right now 5k with shelby dominating plus probably some of those 1500 athletes moving up to the 5k that's going to be a tough team to make 10k with huddle out of it and emily infield's health being sort of a constant question there's really other than emily sisson there's not really any other names that you think about with the exception of Marielle Hall who would be in that mix. And we don't know exactly what distance Marielle is going to choose for the next trial. So anyway, my point being that if Gwen's strength is the speed side and she knows the 10K from the ITU work, why wouldn't you focus there? Now, I think what Shalane is talking about might allude to the fact that the 5K or 10K could be a plan B for Gwen. Because they're going to be working those systems, we know. She's going to have time to recover between the trials in Atlanta and the summer track trials in Eugene. And so maybe it is a backup. And Gwen has a shot to make it there. So we'll see. But I agree with everything Shalane said. The other thing Shalane said was, it took me seven years to sort of figure <laughs> figure out how to master the marathon. It's just a tough go. And we alluded to it in earlier podcasts where we talked about Gwen's challenge here. It's just... It just takes a while to build up the not only the acumen to run a good marathon, but also just the aerobic training loads to do it with the best of the world. So she's got an uphill battle. We know she's going to go back and work, and it's going to be interesting to see how things go. But completely agree, this time doesn't matter in the least. All right, let's go to the men's side. Of course... I completely missed this one, and in some ways we both did because Joffrey Carui ended up sixth in 206.45, faded at the end. You know, he was sort of the aggressor late in this race as it related to the Pacers. You know, he was kind of keeping keeping the group honest. At one point, he bridged the gap to the Pacers who'd gotten away a little bit and was kind of surging a little bit all over the place. It's almost like Carui was so used to running a race without pacers that he kind of screwed this one up with the pacers in the mix. Like it almost threw off his game a little bit, but he faded, didn't get it done, ended up getting beat by Farah and Rupp, who was fifth. And of course, Mo Farah won in 205 with a negative split by about 30 seconds and looked really, really strong coming across that finish line. It looked like he had more gears left for sure. So I have to eat crow on this one. Congrats to Mo, even though I don't like you as an athlete and I'm not going to be a fan. <laughs> Got to give him props on this race. Yeah, he he 
I do truly believe now, um, two, two biggest takeaways and then a third takeaway, but the two biggest ones are Karui now has a question mark beside him. Um, and we wondered when there, where and when that was going to be. Um, he surprised us at Boston two years ago. Then he surprised me again when he won the world championships, and I swore I would never not count him. And then he didn't do well at Boston, but we had a lot of good reasons for that. Again, I think after Boston and with this, with races that are paced, as you said, it's a problem for him. Number two, um, he's, he's such a dumb runner, Chris, that he just made the stupidest mistakes you could possibly make. And I, I mean, I was just... I didn't get to watch this one. Um, I, I went back later and used Let's Run's um, discussion forum to read through the way the race played out, which was both eye-opening and frustrating at the same time. Um, I don't always re- I don't know that I would recommend that process to figuring out how a race goes by, but it was interesting anyway. Um, but so many people were just discounting and talking about Mo being in the back and how bad Mo looked and all the stuff at the beginning, and then. I was just like, what are you guys talking about? This guy is the champion. He's been doing this for forever, sitting at the back. He understands what he's doing. He doesn't feel like crap. Karui just did all the dumbest things. And, you know, Galen went with him. Galen was marking Karui throughout that entire race, not marking Mo. Fatal error for Galen because he also got rolled into and sucked into surges and moves. Nowhere near as bad as Karui did, but still he did, especially late in the race when the real results needed to happen and Mo just sat in the back reeling him in basically completely staying connected but not not having to to roll on any hard surges at any point in time I'm um, just so number one Karui has a question mark beside him he's still going to be a major player somebody I would consider to be in the mix for a medal at the Olympic Games but Chris here's the other one this one is a little more controversial I really do think that Mo now is in the conversation with racing with Kipchoge at the Olympic Games. He still has room to go. He's still got room to go to get there. But this race is going to be slower at the Olympic Games. The weather's going to be terrible. It's going to be hot. It's going to play into all the strengths that Mo knows. And and will Mo... uh, The question mark I have for Mo now going to the Olympic Games, we know that Iliad Kipchoge will have... Um, done everything he can possibly do to make himself as resilient as possible for race day. I'm not so sure that Mo is going to be in the same spot. He lives a life of ease. He does not live a Spartan existence. He really is a Westerner now. He's not a Somali. He is from Somalia, but he's not. He's a he's a he's a Londoner, and he likes his 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 life of ease. And will he? Um, he talks about his weeks on end away from his family, where Kipchoge is months and months on end away from his family. So I don't want to say Mo is. I just think Mo is. We've got to take it into consideration. And Ilya Kipchoge, I'm certain, raised his eyebrows and said, "Okay, there's a re- there's really only one. Karui is a little bit of a question mark, and now Mo moves into that category of real potential spoiler for Kipchoge." Um, those are the two main things that I took away. A third thing is Galen Pup needs to figure this thing out. He did run a good race. He PR'd, right? He had the best. He had a slightly behind his PR. Slightly behind his PR. He had a solid race. Another 206. Another 206 but he's really just, impressive. I just don't think, I just, he just didn't inspire any confidence in me that he is going to be able to make the moves, especially when you saw the results throughout the rest of the field and the way the other people raced. There are enough people right there with him. This is a little bit more like, instead of the way it looked in, um, at the 08 Olympics, it's a little bit more like it looked at the 2012 Olympics, where 
Everybody caught at 08. Nobody could catch up with Galen. He got second because he just rolled on on Farah and got second. That's not going to be the case here. Galen's going to have to work for everything he had. Less than optimal buildup. We know that he wasn't feeling incredibly great. There are still reasons to be optimistic, <clears throat> Greg Mackin. But in my feeling, basically, is I do not think that Galen really at this point in time. We need another result for me to be able to pick him at this early state as a medal contender at the Olympic Games. What What are your takeaways from this on the men's side, Chris? Well, I was wrong about Mo. Takeaway number one, I still don't like him. I still don't trust him. But as I, but I do agree with you that if there is a threat to Kipchoge, Mo is now in that discussion because of how he ran this race, the negative split, the fact that he ran 205 in less than ideal conditions, the way he now, as, I, you know, as we put it together with the London result and his resilience in that race, it shows that he's tougher than maybe I gave him credit for, which means that he's gonna be he's gonna be a threat, especially in a couple of years as Kipchoge gets a couple of years older. Um, now, Mo's also not that young either, so he's got some, some things to do to kind of play catch up there a little bit. But I agree with you; he's gonna be a threat. The other takeaway for me was. The Japanese runners mm. are also going to be potential medal contenders. You know, I had mentioned Seguro Osako as a potential fourth place runner. He got third, yep. so I missed that spot by one, but he's training with the Oregon Project. He got a $1 million bonus for breaking the... 1 million yen bonus. Sorry, 1 million so 800 yen, 800,000 yeah, Almost yeah. a $1 million bonus for breaking the Japanese record. Ran, runs 205.50 really not that far off and was de definitely in the mix with definitely. these guys. And so, but he know, ran just like Mo did very, very, very conservatively, smart. very smart. smartly. And so I like somebody like that to me that now gets sort of propelled into the conversation about potentially getting, you know, not necessarily a gold or a silver, but potentially a bronze. But you had three Japanese athletes in the top 12 in this race. Yuki didn't have such a good day. He ended up 19th. But this, I think, was like his 10th marathon of the year. So, <laughs> you know, we we get that Yuki's yeah. got a few things going on. So that was sort of my second takeaway was was, damn, the Japanese runners are here are here to, to stay and can be threats for medals as it relates to Rupp. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, he's he's now run 206. Oh, seven or something like that. And now 206, 21. That's that's really impressive, and to have a couple of results in the two hundred sixes now. Obviously, this field was too much for him, but how much of that not having that extra gear at the end was related to an, uh, a less than optimal buildup? I don't know, but I wouldn't count him out. the The one thing I will say though is that as it relates to the marathon, if you look at his frame versus Kipchoge's frame versus Farah's frame, like he's a bigger guy. Yep, and you know taller than these guys and he's carrying more weight just by his by his frame and so that that is difficult to compete you know with over the course of 26.2 miles and we know Kipchoge's probably you know 120 soaking wet and you know tiny tiny human and Farah's pretty small too and super super lean and and Rupp is obviously lean but he's just taller and so how does that affect him the humidity probably affected him more than those other guys, which 
kind of tells me that this is a pretty damn good result for him. So I, I'm not saying that, you know, Rupp's not going to have a chance for a, for a medal given these other threats, but I do think it's an uphill battle for him given that maybe, you know, maybe the marathon isn't his best event. Yeah, I think we're both on the same page there. Um, we said we said the same thing in different ways, basically. Um, mine, I, I do think, though, that I, I guess in my head I had Galen, <coughs> given the way his coach's prep is and given the way he shows up on big race days, usually, I guess I kind of had him almost as a shoe-in for a medal, which is... I'm just realizing now is foolish, and uh, I think it's a lot more. Yes, he's one of maybe a half dozen who are in a potential position for a bronze medal, right? Um, and maybe that, not, and I think that number will probably expand. But you know, now I've got Karui in the same place, you know. Right, so, right. Um, and but and I can tell you, it that's a surprise to me. Um, so, uh, yeah. So it, we'll see. We'll see. As it relates to Rupp, though, there was certainly one thing that is certain, which is that he is light years ahead of the rest of the American men. <laughs> <laughs> right? Unfortunately. It's not even close. I mean, as I sort of predicted in the preview podcast, we had pretty much meh results from the rest of the American men in this field. Elkanah Kabaddi trains with the Scott Simmons group in Colorado Springs was our next best American in 13th at 212. And then he had Aaron Braun, 213. Jonas Hampton, 214. Parker Stinson, 214. And again, it's just like, I'm sorry. I'm not excited about any of that. There, So we have this massive gap from Rupp to the next best American and it doesn't seem like anyone's coming to fill that void. Now, maybe there's somebody out there that we haven't that we don't know about or haven't thought about, but it doesn't seem like there's anybody coming except maybe Beb who has now said, Hey, <laughs> you know, like he, after this weekend, he's looking at these Chicago results and thinking, hell, if I'm going to be, I don't know. I think he's going to be 43 years old at the next trials. Like I can make a team. I think I could still run 212 and beat these guys basically is what he's saying. And so he won't even have to run 212. <laughs> so I what mean, do you so think about that? It makes me so sad. It makes me so sad. Um, you know, I, on our podcast training group, somebody mentioned how great the Japanese men were and how poor the American men were. But the Japanese men and the American women are really on par and interesting in a similar way where you see them right on the cusp of being the best in the world, not quite there, um, but competing with the East Africans for sure. And um, the Japanese men are, and the used to be the Japanese women were in control, but now the American women are. So I do think that's pretty interesting. And what's going on? Like, why is this the case? And Chris, usually I can find some sort of piece of logic to this. Like, I can get some logical understanding for maybe there's the, and I don't have any for why our men are so bad and our women are so good, except that maybe... Um, you know, that the men, the women are so much more, the best women are more willing to, they're in one training group and they are training together. But that's not exactly true because Jordan's not in that group. And, um, but I don't know. It just, I don't really have a, 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 an answer. Do you? Do you have a reason why you can, no, anything I mean, you can see? If I was speculating, I think it relates to the fact that the guys aren't taking the marathon seriously. I, you know, I don't, I just don't necessarily believe with the exception of maybe the NAZ elite crew with Ben Rosario, that they're actually training 
for the marathon and the ways that need to to be done to get at the top level. I mean, Amy Hastings Craig doing 25 mile long runs every single weekend. Are the guys, American guys that are aspiring to the marathon, are they doing that? I don't know. And so that's the only explanation I can come up with is that they're not really committed to the work required to do the marathon because otherwise they would be there. I think also we don't see perhaps some of our more talented men moving to the marathon yet. I'd like to see some of our 5K, 10K athletes move up and move up in a serious way. Like we've talked about it, Ben True. You know, Ben True could be. He could be. He could make the American the American Marathon team Easily. if he just committed to training for a marathon. And he's not guaranteed to make the team. No. He's less likely to make it in the 10, in my opinion, than he is to make it in the marathon. So honestly. why isn't Ben True moving up? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I'd like to see some of those guys that with potential at those distances make the move and, and make a move that, that is definitive. That's like I'm committed to doing the work required to be good at marathoning. And I just don't think the not American pulling men a Molly, are there. Not pulling not a Molly, Molly Huddle. <laughs> yeah, which we'll talk about Molly in a second. But So that to me is the only explanation is that our American men other than Rupp aren't really committed to the distance. So we'll see. But there's opportunity there. For somebody who's, you know, in this game to to switch to the marathon early, commit to it, and make a team. So we'll see who that's going to be. All right, as we roll through our current events, we've got a couple of things to get to. We want to talk about the U.S. 10-mile championships, which happened in Twin Cities, or at least along with the Twin Cities Marathon in Minneapolis this past weekend. On the women's side, Sarah Hall outkicked. Molly Huddle for the win, defending her 10-mile title by a single second. Probably the first U.S. championship that Molly Huddle hasn't won that she attempted to win in, who knows, maybe a decade. And so kind of a shocker. Says that Sarah's continuing to do good things, but you and I both had a similar reaction as it relates to Huddle on this one. What was that? Um, maybe she's actually training for the marathon now. <laughs> yeah. um, that was what we both said immediately. And I, I do think it definitely made us both smile and say, that's a good sign. Because we know Sarah is sharp as shit right now. She is so sharp right now. Um, and so it's really good to see Molly not so sharp. And it is an indicator that we may finally get what we've been wanting, which is a truly epic marathon performance from Molly and she needs it soon because she's starting to become less uh, less of a of a of a quantity that we're willing to bet on when it comes to marathon racing yes yeah I said the same thing to me this is a good sign I mean she's committed to the marathon I think some would look at it and say well I don't know maybe that means she's lost a step but we don't think so we think this bodes well for what's to come with her in the marathon, and hopefully that plays out to make this Shalane v. Molly v. Dez v. Jordan v. Amy Hastings Craig battle really all it can be. On the men's side, wait, wait, before you go, go there, ahead. one big result I want to highlight to people, yep. and this is another potential person like we've talked about in the past with Emily Sisson. Emma Bates is built to be a marathoner. She's designed to be a marathoner. She was only three seconds behind both these two ladies who we'll yep. both be talking about it. If she moves up, 
If Emma moves up, watch out. That's another person for you guys to be looking at. This is a natural-born marathoner who I'm surprised hasn't moved up yet. But anyway, she had a great result, I thought, with getting third in this race and being just off the back of those two incredibly talented and very experienced marathon, very experienced road racers. So it's a really, really step up for Emma Bates and one that should get people's attention. Agree with that. On the men's side, we had a sweep of by the U.S. Army group, Scott Simmons and Colorado Springs. This time, Shadrach Kipchachir got the better of his two teammates, Leonard Career and Stanley Cabane. They were seven seconds apart and more and about 50 seconds up on the rest of the field. So pretty much dominated this one. Not a lot of a surprise there. Because we pretty much know that <laughs> on the women's side, it's the Bowerman Track Club dominating everything. And then on the men's side, it's Scott Simmons and his crew from Colorado Springs. So to see them go one, two, three here isn't a surprise. Leonard Career, I mean, he's somebody that I would love to see move up to the marathon, right? I mean, a guy who's shown to be really to have huge range all the way up to the half on the roads. And of course, really, really good 10K runner. U.S. champion in the 10K. Why isn't he moving up and going for that team? I don't know. Scurred. I don't know. You I think? do think that th- I do think the distance. I mean, why is Kibet the guy on that team going for the marathon? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I maybe. I don't know. I don't think he wants to do the work. That's what I would. That's what I would guess. There you is go. That Back to my reason. He's scared, and that's scared. The guys right? aren't willing to do the work. I, I do believe that that's the case. Um, um, one thing I want to highlight here is Stanley Kabeni. Steeplechaser, Steeple. going running a solid ten miler here and going out with those guys, you know it's it it helps a lot to know that they're your teammates, right, and that you've done the work with them. But watch out, guys, watch out for Cabane, especially when you consider a steeple five k double, Chalimo. I mean, all those guys that got to have their eyes. I mean, that's a this is a really good race for Stanley Cabane. It's a it's a yeah. sort of a game changer for him, in my opinion. And he's rolling right with those guys. This was a great race, by the way. The way that race played out, they went out hard from the front and hammered away um, on a tough on a relatively tough course. So it's great great results. So last thing we'll mention before we go into our topic is Des has a coach. She was on a conference call talking about her prep for. New York City, and she is now back with her college coach who coached her at Arizona State, who's now at Michigan State. His name is Walt Drenth, and he said apparently he's writing her workouts. She's training right now in North Michigan, in the north of Michigan, where she has a place. And this is her quote about what the work he's been giving her. She says, I'm, I'm probably more out of my comfort zone than ever before. He's really tested me with workouts and systems I haven't worked on in a really long time. Sort of the uh, kind of alluding to working some of that BO2 stuff that maybe the Hansons always sort of aired on the threshold side of things. And so to see her working on some some leg speed and turnover and probably some efficiency work, what do you think that means for Des going into New York? Two things. Number one, she is not done. <laughs> right. So anybody who thought she was done, she's not done. Um, number two, um, of course, we are excited to see her shift and change up her training schedule a little bit. Adding a little more VO2 work is going to pay a lot of dividends. Um, her coach is extremely knowledgeable. Walt Drenth is not a 
is not a name a lot of Americans know. Um, he's been in the college game and doesn't coach post-collegiate athletes, but he's extremely good. When he coached at Arizona State, he had he recruited both Desi and Amy Hastings at Craig. Um, and uh, he hasn't had the same success at Michigan State, but Michigan State's also a little bit of a tougher place to get people to come. He grew up in that Michigan area. That's where he's from. His brother was one of the great American distance runners at the 5K who passed away tragically um, in the 80s as part of the Athletics West Track Club. Um, so he has a pedigree. He's known by those who are deep in have a deep dive in the American run, distance running community. Um, this is a good move for her, a little bit of a change-up, shifting gears. We talk about this all the time. Getting a different coach to do something a little bit different really can pay big dividends, and we both know um, – Desi's got wheels, more wheels than people really recognize. Um, we saw her run some really fast 10Ks and 5Ks in her in the past. So I'm excited for her to change things up a little bit and excited to see her being excited and engaged and energized. This is good news for American distance running um, because it's definitely going to keep the pressure on everybody else. Well, the other thing it, t it hopefully foreshadows for me with her is that now that she's got the major win off of her back and she can take perhaps some more risks with her running. This idea of working on speed also makes me hope that when it comes to running New York, that she shows a willingness to sort of stick with a pack and kind of go with the gear changing that might happen in that pack versus typically Des is sometimes taking herself out of races because she's given herself artificial limits on the paces she can run and kind of holds that consistent steady pace the whole time which is in the past couple years kind of left her out of the mix right for races at the end and so i'm hoping this foreshadows perhaps a little more risk taking with her race strategy in new york i, I want to see her up there mixing it in with with mixing it up with shalane and some of the gear changes that the african runners will throw in there so we'll see but it's exciting for all U.S. marathon fans that Des is not done and is back and training well for New York. All right, as we transition into our main topic, we've got to give a little update that I think will be a good sort of transition point. We, we've got a lot of questions, emails of people asking about Mary Margaret. <laughs> for those that don't remember, Mary Margaret is somebody that had a listener question about how running slower for the long run can translate to your race, your race goals or being able to run marathon goal pace for longer periods of time. And with that answer, you and I both guaranteed Mary Margaret that if she listened to us and followed our advice that she could get her goal of sub four at twin cities this past weekend. And she wrote me an email to give me an update. Ultimately, Mary Margaret did not get her goal, Steve. So mm. we both owe it <laughs> to her, although she's saying she won't accept our money. We both <laughs> owe her her race entry fee, and maybe perhaps that means we have to donate it to a cause that she believes in. But uh, but I'll read her email to to me after this result she ended up running a 416 she said i adore you both and so thankful for your help in chasing this goal i threw up at mile 22 and then again on hands and knees at mile 23 i just couldn't pull it back together the marathon won as it always does but i love the ride 
Mary Margaret. P.S. You will not be permitted to pay for my race because there were some some too speedy miles at the beginning. It's on me. Hmm. So, first of all, Mary Margaret, we are sad that you didn't get your goal. It stinks when you work hard for something. I had been in touch with Mary Margaret, and she had done well with her training. She'd gotten to mileage levels that she never reached and felt really strong coming in. We did exchange some some messages after that initial message and she said she felt fantastic 321 if you look at her splits she actually ran i you know i think she kind of dinged herself for that but if i look at her splits she actually started nice and conservatively came through the half and 201 it seemed to me like she set herself up for a perfect finish she said she felt great through 21 but then her stomach turned on her she was thrown up at 22 and then again at 23 and she said she was all over the place after that just trying to keep moving forward she said she didn't pee until five hours after the race. She's she's thinking maybe some dehydration got the best of her on a cool morning in Minneapolis. And so there's some lessons certainly to take from that, and it always sucks to not get your goal. But I want to first congratulate Mary Margaret for being willing to put herself out there and go for it. And, of course, we're here to help her talk through it, but... Yeah, but this brought up a bigger topic for us because we also had others racing this weekend in Chicago, St. George, Twin Cities, and then we've got other races coming of how do you digest a race, whether it goes well or whether it goes poorly. How do you digest it? How do you move on from it? How do you take the lessons from it and carry it forward and hopefully be better next time? And so that's what we want to kind of cover. And so... We can in some ways be speaking to Mary Margaret on this one <laughs> as we talk through it to help her recover from not getting that goal. Uh, but of course, to anybody, and I want to emphasize that this really is about whether you got your goal or not, because there are some telltale mistakes we see people make that, you know, they almost get overexcited after after hitting a big goal and can sometimes quickly end up making some mistakes in training afterwards because they they kind of get a little bit overzealous in response and so let's walk through this i've got sort of a list of kind of takeaways that you and i can go back and forth on and then of course you can add yours as we go steve but the first bit of advice i wanted to start with whether you get your goal or whether you whether you don't is basically Gwen Jorgensen's advice and from her press conference, which is take 24 hours. I think some people had more like 72 hours. So 24 to 72 hours to either celebrate your race and not try to think about the future. Just be, you know, be excited, relax, enjoy it, sort of bask in the glow of getting your goal or to feel all the feelings of disappointment, of frustration, of pain, cry if you need to cry if you didn't get your goal because so often I find that on the positive side people will quickly jump into what's next what's next I need to you know now add 30 miles a week to my training and it's all going to go amazingly well so they don't give themselves that time to celebrate the win or you know they don't give themselves time to really feel all the emotions grieve the loss of that goal and so to me, that's sort of advice one is give yourself 24 to 72 hours to either celebrate or to just bask in all of those miserable feelings. 
Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, and one thing I would suggest, though, in, in tandem to this idea of, um, of, of just getting, quote-unquote, closure on the race that you just participated in um, is write down your description of how the race played out, both what you were expecting to do going into the race, what you executed, and maybe what lessons you learned afterwards. Um, and try to do that in the first 24 hours if possible. Um, and the reason for that is you're going to process this one way or another, and and whether positively or negatively, or maybe a lot of different emotions, and your first thought is usually your best thought. It doesn't always play out that that's the way you need to act or what steps you need to take, but it is that that was the visceral experience you had of that 26.2 mile journey both in the training going in the race itself and sort of thinking through it quickly afterwards as you assess what happened really try to write down and get a like a race report for yourself one that not is going to be shared with anybody else just yourself to kind of get it all written down and get it out there and the reason i say that is because in 72 hours or in a three weeks or in a month or two months or as you as you line up for your next marathon, it's a great document to go back and review and to look at and to check yourself, um, especially if you notice after two or three, four marathons that some of the same sentiments are repeated over and over and over again in those post-race assessments. That can be really helpful. But mostly it's just to get it out and get it off your shoulders and get that experience out there. It's a really good process, in my opinion, to get a nice quality post-op that you've written and not communicated with to too many people so that you can sort of get your feeling. Um, that's the, that's one of the other things I would say in that 24 to 72 hour, get some, get a pen and paper or get your feet, your fingers tapping on that keyboard to try to get some kind of assessment for what happened, how, what you wanted, what happened and how you, where you're going to go from there. Um, and, and then, then, then take the time. Yeah, I mean, I would say resist the urge to draw conclusions at that point, but rather just document how it went, how you felt at each point. Make sure you have your splits in a place that you can go back and look at them later. Talk about how you feel. Talk about some of the mental things that might have come into your head at certain points, but just try to document how it went, both physically, mentally, with nutrition, you know, as it relates to Mary Margaret specifically, clearly she had some kind of stomach issue. And, you know, as as I had those exchanges with her, she thought perhaps it ended up being something related to dehydration and just not getting enough fluids, which caused her stomach to revolt. And so if that's your initial feeling, then write down, you know, write down, Mary Margaret, how you managed hydration both in the days before as well as during the race itself so that when when it's time to pull the lessons out, you at least have the information. But I would say I would say resist the urge to draw conclusions at this point because you're still in that that mind meld space where you might not be thinking fully and clearly. I remember specifically a race that we did, Steve with a bunch from Team Row. We went to the Martian Marathon in Dearborn, Michigan of all places to to run a race that where we all had big goals and ended up being pretty warm that day got into the mid 70s sunny on a sort of unshaded really challenging asphalt course that just 
essentially kicked our asses. And we, you know, I think we all kind of, or I think we had a few people hit their goals, but for the most part, people didn't hit their goals. And so we all kind of were crying in our beers back at the Airbnb <laughs> afterwards. And I think in that moment, we were probably in those initial hours after the race, probably trying to draw too many conclusions about why we didn't ha- hit our goal versus giving it some time. And of course you want to document all those feelings, make sure you have the ability to reference it later, but don't jump to the lessons and conclusions yet. Just get stuff down. And as it relates to those that didn't get their goal, I want to specifically comment that there are no feelings that are out of bounds. And one of the things that you guys specifically are going to run into is a lot of people who don't understand your journey telling you that it's okay or that you still did well. Mary Margaret, 416 marathon, that's really damn good for a lot of people out there. And so you're going to run into a lot of people that are telling you it's okay. You did awesome anyway. Your time is really amazing. And yes, that's true. But I also recognize that when I've been in that place, it kind of makes you mad <laughs> to hear those things because you, you know, in your head, it wasn't good enough. And so, you know, I've always personally struggled with how to deal with those messages, those positive messages of people trying to lift you up. And I think everybody's going to have a different strategy. But one of the things that I'll do is just frankly ignore that stuff (laughs) for three days. You know, give myself the window of 24 to 72 hours to just not respond, maybe read them, but just ignore it and just let all the feelings that you're going to have, the authentic feelings, again, crying, disappointment, you know, guilt, shame, anger, whatever it is, just feel it. And don't be ashamed that you're not cheered up by those messages. And it's not their fault. It's not your fault. You're in a zone. You need, you're in a place where you need to get all those things out so that you can move on and deal with it. And, and I know that sometimes there's guilt around people trying to cheer you up and you're just not to be cheered up in that moment. And it's okay. Yeah. Just tell people too soon. <laughs> just tell them too soon. Too soon. <laughs> Yeah, or just ignore it and, you know, get back to those messages after you give yourself a window to sort of reflect on things and thank them for it. Of course, people aren't trying to make you feel bad things or guilty about it, but they just don't understand. And so, you know, so that may be one thing in that world that you just have to be careful about how you manage it. And on the other side, those that, that crush their goal, you know, I think... I want to emphasize there that you truly do give yourself the ability to celebrate without thinking too quickly about the future. Like I know I've been there where I've gotten a goal and immediately I'm thinking, man, if I just do this, this, this in training, I'm going to be able to do so much better the next time or in my next race, or I'm already planning the next marathon or whatever it may be. And what happens with you, the risk there, and, and there's a few, but one of the risks there is that you don't give yourself the mental breather to take sort of all that mental energy, time, stress, motivation, commitment, discipline that went into getting this goal. You don't give yourself a time to sort of let all that out like a, like an Instapot, like a pressure cooker. <laughs> like you got to let the pressure out 
And that can come in many forms of celebration. It could also just come in the forms of just vegging out and letting yourself relax and not run for a period of time and just basking in the glow of that race without letting yourself look ahead. It is so critical because I've seen it so many times where people are eager to get on the next thing. And then two weeks later, three weeks later, they find that they can't get the motivation again because they just hit the big goal. They didn't give themselves a chance to really celebrate it, let the pressure out. And then, and then they're burned out essentially at that point. And it's hard to get back on track. I think that that is the single most the single biggest mistake athletes make when they have a good result. Um, do not get on a starting line. Take your break. Take a deep breath. Recover, recuperate, enjoy. Think about it. You, In order to reach the goal that you reached, you probably had to give so many things up. Reconnect with your family. Go out on a date night with your husband or your wife. Spend time with your kids. Go on a vacation if you have a vacation to take. Um, go visit friends who maybe you haven't seen. Go see your family, your your mother, your father, if you haven't communicated with them. Get on the phone and talk to all those people that you couldn't talk to before. Just get back to what we call normal life. That really is um, what most people live. And when you're in marathon training, life is not normal. Um, so do that and give yourself a chance to take a deep breath. Now, on the flip side, those who don't have a great race, I'm a big believer that getting on a starting line relatively soon is okay. In fact, and sometimes optimal, but it definitely cannot be 26.2 miles. And that's the, the, that's the next biggest mistake that happens is people sign up immediately for a marathon when they have not gotten the full recuperation recovery that they need. Because you'll be able to run a 10-miler or a half-marathon or based off the legs that you have from a marathon, especially those people who have a poor performance. Usually they'll find out um, that, that if their fitness assessment was accurate, that they were ready to run as fast as they thought, but then they missed their goal by 5 or 10 minutes. Um, they're almost invariably able to nail it for a 10-miler or a half-marathon or in a comparative analysis from, a, you know, the, the time adjustment. So um, they'll be tired, Chris, <laughs> and they need to follow a recovery schedule that makes a lot of sense. They don't need to do any quality workouts. They just need to run easy. They can get back up to 10 miles in two to three weeks, get their body back into a swing of things, and then, and then they can go out and run a race. But I really don't think that's necessary. In fact, I only make that suggestion with the people who are begging, begging, begging for an opportunity to see where their fitness is. Yeah, for that, we have to reference episode 58, where we talk more tactically about taper, but also post-marathon recovery and how do you manage your schedule afterwards. Because it does take about three weeks for your muscles, even after the soreness goes away, to be ready for more work. And so you gotta, you have to be patient with the rebound and as we say in that episode we recommend not running at all for the first three to four days and just give yourself a chance to let your legs recover now once you've given yourself that time then 24 to you know 72 hours some people may need you know another 24 beyond that 96 hours whatever it may be give yourself one to three or four days to just be and then you know, and then I think you can start to drill into the lessons of the race a little bit. One thing I want to caution, though, is, and this is something I've found in my racing career, as I, as I think back to races I've done before, and I've run 16 marathons, and so you know, I have a pretty good memory of those 16 experiences. And my ability to extract lessons from any of those races now is greater than it was a week after the race. 
wisdom comes with time from these things. And so, you know, when we talk about pulling lessons out, I want you to start that process within, you know, a week or so. But I also want you to sort of recognize that those initial conclusions could be refined and maybe even streamlined over time as you get more distance from the event. And so do give yourself the opportunity to write some things down after that first five or six days, but recognize that in a month you might be refining that a little bit. So don't write it down in pen, write it down in pencil and just you know recognize that you're going to have a little bit of an ever evolving perspective on what you learn from a race as you get further from it. One thing I want to emphasize as it relates to lessons too is that to me and I always emphasize this with my, this with my runners there are training results and there are racing results and you need to digest both things after a big cycle so you need to obviously look at the race itself and figure out how that went and break it down and which we'll kind of talk about how you might parse that out in a second but then there's also training cycle results Sometimes those two things are inextricably linked. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes, and I think perhaps in Mary Margaret's case where her stomach got the better of her, she has training results that that were probably fantastic. I mean, she was running 20% more mileage consistently than ever before. She was following a program with, you know, that we, we had talked about with her that has a little bit more rigor than she's done before. So she probably got to a really good place from a fitness perspective, but the race didn't allow that to play out because her stomach got in the way. And so I do think you need to parse those two things out and then digest them separately. As it relates to racing results, I wanted to throw some bullets out here in terms of what to digest and think through. And then, you know, I'd like to get your perspective on it, Steve. Obviously, you know, and these are just kind of buckets to think through as you pull lessons out. Obviously, pacing is a bucket to look at. You know, how did you execute your race plan versus, you know, what you prepared to do or what you'd planned before the race started? Also, as it relates to that, did you have a good plan? You know, maybe it was too aggressive. Maybe it wasn't aggressive enough. Maybe you didn't quite manage the sections well once you got in the race and realized how things were going to play out. So think about pacing. Think about nutrition, both before, during, and after the race. Mental game. How were you there? What were your weak spots? What, you know, what worked and what didn't as it related to some of the maybe mental strategies you brought to bear? And then the last thing, which kind of relates to pacing, is... You know, were you honest with yourself about your fitness going in? And you and I talked about this, Steve, offline before we jumped in today, is that sometimes you end up shooting for something that's too aggressive. And and so relative to your fitness, and maybe you have to couch everything with that in mind, that, hey, I went for it. I took a risk that maybe wasn't quite there for me. Magic didn't happen, and so I failed. And that's going to color your lessons across all those other categories in a way that might be unique. I mean, there's a lot that you just said there, yeah. Chris. There's Un- a lot. Unpack could, some You of could it. nearly do an entire podcast episode on just those points that you just made. But right. I do think it's crucial and critical to realize that um, it, 
I, I used to say that it always plays out a certain way, but I have now had so many years of experience coaching so many marathoners that there are a lot of, there is a good bit of variety in this. But more often than not, people, number one, overassume their fitness. People think they're fitter than they are. I listened to a recent podcast with one of the Gracie brothers who's in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu world. UFC. Yes, which I, which they're... Old school UFC. Old school UFC and really the only true technique that's not about sport and much more about ass kicking, right? So, but his, one of his points was in almost every scenario he's ever been in his entire life, he's never seen a human being who underestimated their ability in a fight. Everyone always, always overestimates their ability to fight. And that's someone who I would take it on as a, as a, as a person who's wise and understands. He's seen a lot of fighters and I've seen a lot of runners, Chris, almost everyone over assumes their fitness level. Um, it's just human nature. We want to look better than we really are. We project better than we are. It's especially easy to do that now in this day and age of our keeping our results on Strava where anybody and everybody can see them. Um, and so that's not an indictment on anyone. It's just the way it is. And so um, frequently as a coach for many years, I would just get so excited about other people's excitement about their performances and their workouts that I thought that this workout some specific workout we did equaled a specific time in the race. And while that fitness, in, while that workout might indicate that someone has the capability to do the work, never are we doing 26.2 miles. And until you do 26.2 miles under race day circumstances with a number pinned to your chest and a race result at the front of your name and at the back of your name in terms of your place and in terms of your time, then it's, then it's not a race and it doesn't count. You don't get to count a PR. Um, so, to me, it's really, really crucial really, to understand that, number one, so many people and almost all of us over-assume our, our ability to be abil uh, where our current fitness is. Um, I do think th the flip side of that, Chris, is that in the long run, so many people underestimate their ability to get fitter and better over time. So I don't want people to get that confused. I do believe so many people undersell what they're capable of. Um, but this next point comes in. And that's that it takes time once you start doing hard quality work, when you do longer long runs, when you add 20% volume to your weekly volume, when you do race prep type, type workouts, very infrequently do these um, results play out in that first training cycle. It takes two, three, four training cycles for them to play out. And people will look at us and say, well, what's the point? Well, I can't do anything about that. Um, there are occasional scenarios where I see people get a big pop in fitness, but that almost always happens in the 5K and 10K areas. It very rarely happens in the marathon because the marathon training that we do um, sort of creates a level of fatigue that gets run into the race itself. There's no way to properly prepare for the marathon and to properly peak for the marathon without people going absolutely crazy, at least in my opinion. So, um, And ultimately... I don't think it does us any good to be completely neuromuscularly and physically prepared and recovered from the training to go into the race because so much of what it takes to be great in a marathon is to remember how hard it is and how tough it is. So I wouldn't really recommend an, what might somebody might call an optimal physical recovery plan before you go into a marathon in terms of a peak. Um, but people, are, people overestimate their fitness in the short term and they underestimate their ability in the long term. So keep those two things in mind. Um, and I think they're crucial. Um, so number two, um, to your point, Chris, is that I do think that 
in a lot of ways, the way that um, the way that we present uh, our sport is that um, people think that they're fitter than they are, and they also think that they're tougher than they are. And they people remember frequently us stating that the marathon always wins. But almost everybody tells me that after the race is over. <laughs> and very few people are telling me in the days, weeks, or month prior to the race, the marathon always wins. And so I would suggest that everyone, before they go in, recognize that and get a, get a, get a close personal inventory on do you have the skills necessary psychologically to bear with the challenge that's coming? Um, and the answer is going to be um, varied, and it's not always going to be yes, because so few people are able to give their absolute best performance on a given day because there's so many variables that come into play in a marathon. But I do think this is going back to our overall statement of working on your mental training. Please, please, please realize that that aspect as well is something that doesn't just take. And in fact, I'm a believer that your actual physical fitness, your ability to run 26.2 miles at a given pace if you've been in a quality and in an excellent training protocol will be much faster. You'll take to that much faster than you will to the mental training protocols. It is a lot harder to change what's going on between your ears than what it is to change what's going on in your body. Your body's ready for change. Your mind is frequently not ready for change. So as you reassess and as you look at this, both in a positive light and in a negative light, depending on what your result is, check your mental training protocol going in and check your understanding of what was going to be asked of you to finish that race at the time that you raced. Um, because I do think that people... Um, it just takes a long time to get these mental training techniques, and we need shit sandwiches and ice cream sandwiches, good results and bad results, to basically to accurately assess in the weeks and months post-race um, and get a place there. So those are two things I would have unpacked, Chris, in that long discussion you had. Um, I might have missed a few things, um, and you can you can trigger me if I did. Well, I've got a few more myself as you were talking that I wanted to lay out. On your last point, though, we never, ever master the mental side of this sport, right? That's part of the reason why we keep doing it. And so you do evolve and get better, but there's always there's always better on the mental side. A couple of other notes as it relates to you sort of sorting through your lessons here. One is I would emphasize also write down the positives as well as the opportunity areas. You know, it's easy for us to get negative and really focus on what went wrong. It's another area where I kind of, Oh, not kind of, I do commend Gwen for being able to say, look, I think I got my nutrition strategy pretty nailed and we've worked hard on that in practice. I feel like that wasn't my issue today. And so she has a big lesson there to take to future races that that will benefit her regardless of what time she ran. And so take take the positives as well as the opportunity areas. and And then, of course, I would say separate the controllables from the uncontrollables as well. You know, obviously, certain things about running a certain pace, the mental tactics you used, when you took your gels, all that falls in the controllables camp. But there's also the uncontrollables that you have to factor in. You know, in Chicago this past weekend, it was warm-ish and 95% humidity, and I had a couple of runners that didn't manage that 
a humidity well and it probably wasn't their fault. It probably wasn't anything they could do about it. And so it ended up, they ended up having tough days, you know, in that, in that day. And I know the temptation is going to be for them to look high and low for what the hell happened. I thought I had a good training cycle, but perhaps it's simple as you had a humid day and it got you, you know, that happened to us going back to the Martian example where, we were digesting every little thing that may have gone wrong in our training that caused us not to get our goals. Ultimately, it ended up being 75 degrees and sunny with no shade. So <laughs> maybe that was it, <laughs> you know. And for that race, myself, as I look back on it now, four years later, I ran a 247 there. My PR is a 245. I think that that race might be my best marathon ever. Yeah, you executed, in the, in you, the you fought really hard you had others who were with you it was such a small race that you got to run with your people they started to fall off and yeah i would agree with you that that was a hard day for me as well you know one thing that people don't take into consideration is coaches have really hard times after races are bad too oh, <laughs> like man. it is so I, I think it's actually harder as a coach than it is as an athlete as an athlete you just sort of suck it up and and say okay i've got to do it you know but as a coach you're just trying to figure out i didn't get to choose those decisions that get played out from the gun to the finish line but yet I'm held accountable for all of them regardless. But anyway, I won't go off on. Well, I plus you I get so invested. I mean, watching the yes. tracking screens for me on a Sunday morning of marathon season is gut-wrenching sometimes. I mean, it's great when everybody's having a good day and the results come, but sometimes it doesn't. You know, and for Chicago, for me, for this past weekend, there were a few where I was like, man, I felt like I was running those final miles with my athletes just feeling terrible about how knowing how they were feeling as they struggled so yes it is tough for us as well the last thing i will say as it relates to drawing lessons on the races of course find a sounding board it might be your coach that's obviously a natural sounding board but you may have another athlete that you trust who has knowledge about these things or who knows you as a runner find a sounding board and start playing them playing it out to them so you get some perspective on perhaps what what went down i think sometimes we get so in our own space that we that we can't see everything clearly so having a sounding board however that may manifest for you i think is also a good idea as it relates to breaking down your training steve and how that went you know i think there's a couple things to think about there although that's probably the more difficult part of this equation one thing is just to simply, once you figure out sort of what went wrong in the race, trying to tie that back to training elements can be helpful. You know, there was a time, Steve, with Team Rogue, with the uh, group that you coach here at Rogue, that we weren't having people finish marathons well. They're having solid results, sometimes still PRing, but they weren't closing out marathons and that became a little bit of a theme for a season like well why isn't anybody finishing these races and so we went back and you went back and looked at the training protocols and said okay i need to work on some things that will help people finish races a little bit better so talk about that and maybe some other lessons you might see in connecting what happened in the race to how that might have played out in training yeah so two things here in this regard um Number one, you know, in the case where Chris discussed um, that situation where we didn't see athletes closing, it, it, was, it was especially obvious on the front end of our group. Some of our faster runners were having challenges. And on the back end, it wasn't as obvious. We had some of those, but it wasn't as obvious. And I came to realize how important um, 
how much more those people who have inexperience in their marathon training, who are relatively new at it, or who weren't athletes at a young age, how much more, how much room for improvement they have, and how just basic training product, just training, basically training, getting out the door, getting runs in, and getting physically fit, they'll continue to improve for a while. But the front end of the crew will start to show you where your weaknesses are in your training protocols. In that particular case, we came up with two basic assessments. Number one, we assessed if they weren't closing. Well, one of the reasons they weren't closing is because we weren't closing in workouts. Nearly every workout that we finished, we would get done with a quality. We would do quality in our long run, and then I would let them run easy four miles to get in for the run. Now, every I have every unless it's a drop week, my athletes are allowed to close at any run they want to that isn't quality, no matter what the race distance is. You're 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 free to close as you choose. Um, these are experienced marathoners, folks. I want to make sure our listeners understand this is an experienced group of marathoners. But, um, and then the second and probably most critical thing, Chris, the thing that I didn't, that I underestimated, but have found now to play out over the last few years is we just did more 20 plus mile runs. We thought we could get away with, um, running 18 and 20 mile runs and then doing quality in those 18 and 20 mile runs. We didn't have to do the longer stuff. Now here's the problem though. If you guys who are listening to me say, oh, I need to go out and do a lot more 22, 24, 25-mile runs. You heard us maybe mention that Joey Schumacher has Amy Hastings do nearly 25-mile run almost every weekend. Well, you need to be prepped for that. You need to have taken, you need to have done the things that need to be done in order to be prepared for that. Um, make that sure you understand and you hear that caveat. But the more runs you do over 20 that you can get recuperated and recovered from, the much more likely you're going to be able to close the end of your race. Some of it's just just getting that feel and getting into that. How many, you know, we, if you don't do too many 20-mile runs, then every time you get into a 22-mile run or race, you're in the unknown or you're into a place. Chris, if you only did a 22-mile run or you only did two or three and you ran 16 marathons, you would only be, you'd still be at 35 times that you've run over 22 miles before you ran a marathon in 16 marathons. How is that going to make you prepared? So here's the thing, folks. The race is what the race is. And um, it is it is absolutely in, absolutely essential for anybody that's looking for command performances in a marathon to run longer runs. So, But I do think regardless what the key is that Chris is saying, you probably have a gut feel for the things that didn't work for you. You can go back and listen to our podcast about what we think are crucial and critical to success in marathoning and crucial and critical into running in general. And just make sure that you're doing all those things. You're doing varied pace systems. You've got miles in. You've got the, the, the weekly mileage that you can handle with your life load, um, that you're, you're progressing smoothly and consistently, um, that you're giving yourself ample time for recovery, all those things that we've talked about over and over again. Probably somewhere in there you can find uh, a potential culprit for what basically didn't work for you. Now, here's a nugget of wisdom. This is a pro tip. Don't, if you've got three things on your list, change one of them in the first three to six weeks. Don't change all three. Because the law of understanding variables will come into play. You don't know which of those three was the culprit or if any of the three were the culprit or maybe all three were the culprit. And your experience with those variables was nuanced and changeable and different given the race conditions itself and the race itself and the way your mental game went into the race. So just work one piece at a time and, and continue that sort of deep dive on why you succeeded or failed in your race 
going on throughout your training cycle by looking at these pieces of the training that you that you think might be the culprit for why you didn't succeed. So continue to assess and look at your running and look at your your um, what you've done from a training perspective. Um, but I would really suggest to most folks just basically just keep doing what you're doing because you're probably going to get better. Don't change too many things. Um, I, I would change it. I, I know that the system that Chris and I put out is quality. I don't change very many things. I only change one thing at a time in any given cycle and refuse to allow my athletes to change anything else. But I, d I know that you all are, many of you are self-coached. Many of you are doing your own thing or you're implementing another coach's programming. Listen, trust that you got what got you there got you there. Look at the mental things first and then go to the training things and then only change one training modality or one training variable at a time so that you're not in a situation where you don't know what worked and what didn't work. Yep, you segued to my next point, which is perfect. <laughs> I do want to remind those that had success to still go through that lesson documentation process for the race and for training to say, hey, what I learned this time, and it might mostly be positive things, but that'll help you sort of codify what worked for you and hopefully do more of that in the future. But your point, Steve, about don't make drastic changes is so, so critical, and this applies whether you nailed your goal or whether you didn't, because uh, I've seen both sides of this, of this equation where somebody got their goal and then suddenly as I alluded to earlier decided hey well now if I just amp things up 20-30% across the board then I can do so much better next time and then they end up over firing or overshooting the mark and injured and frustrated and spiraling afterwards it happens a lot in elite athletes we've seen that Steve where somebody will have a breakthrough and then never sort of be able to get back to that again because they've they suddenly think that now they can be super man or woman and do everything 20% more. And that's going to suddenly have a 20% better result for them. So it's so key. And then for those that, that fail, oftentimes the temptation is to throw the baby out with a bath water and be like, man, it was all wrong. I did everything wrong versus recognizing that, Hey, I got some positive lessons from training. If I keep doing what I'm doing, I'll continue to improve. In Mary Margaret's case, let's say dehydration was the issue. And that was just something she mismanaged in those days around the race or, in the, or on race day itself. Everything she did in training still applies. And if she keeps doing that, the next time she lines up, the only thing she needs to change is getting another race bib five or six months down the road, right? Potentially to get that result at some point in the future. So it's so critical that you don't make changes as, as you said, Steve, uh, you know, it's like one thing, minor little tweaks for most people can end up being what you need. And for those that had success, sometimes it's none. Sometimes it's just keep doing what you're doing and the cumulative work of miles and consistency year after year will continue to pay off. I mean, if, if you look at Kipchoge as an example, I mean, he published again after this marathon, his last six weeks of training that people you know, were all deep diving into. Well, how did he get to the world record, right? Same he, as it he, ever was. And he did that after Berlin. I think he did it or right, right after Berlin. He posted last year what he had done. He posted before the breaking two what he had done. Basically, if you look at those three snapshots of his training, the same stuff he's always done. It wasn't any one magic change that got Kipchoge the world record in the marathon. It was just now 
20 years of consistent work under one coach, under one system, doing the same things over and over again in in an environment that is not glamorous, <laughs> in a way that is not glamorous. And now he's the world record holder and the greatest marathoner of all time. So one thing I want to pump it, but jump in here and state is here's the one thing I know for a fact that you should not do. Everybody wants to raise their mileage. Everybody wants to raise their mileage. And that is the one thing I would say. If the only reason to raise your mileage is if you did have success and under, and in that case, I would say 10% of the people that want 10% of the, of the hundred people that want to change it, one person should probably Maybe 10 people should change their mileage. Like 10% of even that population should. If you didn't succeed, do not raise your mileage. Mileage is not why you didn't get what you wanted to get. It is not your weekly mileage. And if you up your weekly mileage, it is the variable that will absolutely quit, kick you in the ass week after week after week after week when you're not ready for it. And then you can stymie and stunt your progression and your and your ability to get better by six nine months a year i've seen 18 months where people who bumped a mileage up 10 miles or 15 miles a week were still paying the price for that mileage bump because they couldn't handle that and the other things that they started to change so if you didn't succeed, don't change your mileage. Look at your quality. Look at your long runs. Look at the way that you planned those things out. But mileage is the last thing people should be changing unless they had unless they had success. And if they had success, a few of those folks probably might be ready for a bump in mileage. But do that under the advice of your coach. Um, while Chris and I talk about mileage mattering and how important mileage is, it is also the most surefire way to get injured and the most surefire way to get overtrained. So be very wary about making that adjustment for sure. And if you do make it, make it in subtle ways, you know, 10% at a time. Stick with that for a season. Don't do drastic 20, 30% jumps because I've seen that happen. And that is a recipe for injury and burnout. Okay, so minor changes. The next thing I'm going to say, because we say it all the time and we're going to say it until we're blue in the face, Steve, is revisit your purpose. This is the perfect time whether you had a good race or a bad race, to revisit your purpose. This might even be more important for those that have good races, Steve, because and we've seen it so many times where somebody gets the big goal they've been striving for for the longest time, and then suddenly they find that they can't get motivated anymore because they got what they wanted, and they haven't done the work to say, okay, now what do I want in this new world where I did the thing I you know, had wanted before? And so it's so critical to sit back and revisit that. And of course, if, if you failed, you know, tweak it, you know, make sure that what you put down there is still the thing that matters to you. But either way, this is the perfect time when you're, you have plenty of distance from your next race to sit down and go back through that. Absolutely. I mean, I think these are, I don't know. You said it perfectly. Okay. There's good. really not much else to say. So <laughs> then the last point I want to make, yeah, cause we've already said that too many times, right? Steve is, <laughs> is get back to work. Get back to work and then find a time to go line up again. Sometimes all it takes is just lining up again. The And this is to me where you have to, if you're going to have success in this, in this sport for a sustained period of time, you have to let go of the the only carrot in your worldview of running being results, right? 
Because if your only carrot is results, then you're not going to make it very far. Your carrot, your primary carrot, I believe, has to be enjoying the journey, enjoying the process, enjoying doing the work with whoever you're doing it with, enjoying the runs on a hot summer day when nobody else is watching, when you don't upload for Strava for three days and nobody knows that you even did that run. But you got it done and you enjoyed it in the suffering. That's that's what you have to find is your primary care. It is just the process of doing the work. Because if it is, then you'll keep doing the work consistently no matter how the results play out for you. And then the results will come when they will come because you're consistently banging it out. And so you've got to find a way to love the journey as much as the results. Yeah, I, I can't. I think we've the la- ended the last three or four podcasts with this kind of discussion. <laughs> we've you're getting metaphysical too, Chris. What's right. going on? Game but on. process process orientation is crucial here. You have to know. Um, and honestly, at the end of the day, um, I, I said this to somebody recently who who said um, that they were so disappointed with the result and something else. And I, I, I and then another person about. Uh, uh, two days later said, I'm not running the race I had planned. I was going to run CIM, but I'm not, I'm not running CIM. I just not, everything's falling apart. My body feels like crap. I'm like, are you having any fun? The person said, absolutely not. And I said, well, stop. <laughs> then stop doing what you're doing. She goes, stop running. And I'm like, yeah, stop running. This person could not stop running. There's no way they could stop running. They just, this, the stress of the result that was coming up to them was so disproportional to the, what their love, their, their love of the sport or the pleasure principle they were taking with it that I said, stop. I know you like to race and there'll be time to race. But the most important thing is that your life revolves, that your life continues to have running as a positive asset and a positive attribute for your day-to-day experience. Because if it doesn't, you're not going to get the result, period, first of all, right? Like if you're not enjoying the process, you're not going to get the result you want. It almost never happens. Very rarely does it happen that someone gets that. Number two, it's part of the valuating of, of the valuation you have of that result. There needs to be some, you don't have to like every workout you do. Believe me, our podcast training group, which I've referenced now three times in this, they are cursing us, Chris. They are lamenting the fact that they have to go through it. They're cursing us in the workout, but yet they post on our page that, thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you gave to me. So they are not necessarily enjoying that exact moment in that process, but they are enjoying the entire process and the kick in the teeth and the, and the checking of their fitness and the asking them to do more than they think they're capable of. All is a part of the process. It's all a part of why they're doing this. And once they connect to that and they see like-minded folks, this is where a, this is where community comes into play, Chris, so importantly. Having other people that are going through similar things as you, even if you're not there with them day to day, can be a, a, a something that helps you get through the tough spots in a process orientation. Because when you're doing all your work by yourself, it sometimes can get daunting and debilitating and frustrating, especially over the summer where we had many people who are not getting any kudos or not getting any positive reinforcement for the whole work that they were doing, but they were able to see that there were other people like-minded who were doing similar things. So find your group, whether you do that with a, a live group of people that you train with on a consistent basis, or if it's just your training partners that you're doing work with, or sign up for a class like we have with our podcast training group. Um, it, there are other options to find other people that help you stay with process. So um, finally, from a process perspective, 
you know, we're I'm working right now on fine tuning our mental training processes for our virtual groups that we're working with. And I'm brought to bear how we frequently discuss the idea of statement of purpose and where statement of purpose sits. And I think a lot, Chris, people consider the statement of purpose as some sort of external part of this process. And um, so I'm kind of changing this a little bit. It's not really a change to what we do with the statement of purpose because the statement of purpose is like a living document that changes. But it's more asking people, what's your foundation to this like what's your found and, and when we ask you what's your statement of purpose it's sort of where does running fit in your purpose but what's your ground what's your grounding for life and challenges that occur because if you know what your foundation or what your grounding is if it helps you with that process orientation it helps you stay in the flow and rhythm of things because you're certain of where you're coming from um, as we know, anytime we, anyone who's had significant drama in their life, whether the passing of a family member, illness in their family, um, major change in lifestyle status, losing a job, things that are really big sort of questioning who we are as human beings, we frequently feel like we're in a deep end of a pool and we can never get, we never get to the bottom of it. We keep trying to push off the ground and we can't get anything. And I'm always like, you just have to wait. You have to drift all the way down to the bottom of the pool. Hold your breath. You can make it. Get to the bottom and then push off the bottom of the pool. It's getting grounding, getting foundation. And it's really important and crucial to get that kind of understanding of who you are and what you're about in this world. And then running will almost always fit, dovetail really nicely into that space. And you now don't have to be nervous about your race result, Chris, because you know where you are, you know where you're coming from, and you know you love the process. So then the race result just becomes an ongoing challenge for yourself, an ongoing opportunity to prove that your foundation and your process are in alignment with who you want to be and what you're trying to accomplish. And almost every poor result that isn't really clearly obvious why you failed is almost always an issue of grounding and purpose, right? And so... Um, Maybe we'll come back at you with some more refinement <laughs> in that area. You and I, uh, Chris and I, are always playing with this with this model and the mental training side. But please think about those things too. That that this this idea of process um, is really the, the the idea of enlightenment is missing the point of what enlightenment is, which is knowing that you already know. Right? It's knowing that you're already there. You already are there if you're out the door. And running and experiencing the joys and the benefits of running from a health perspective, from a psychology perspective, from a mental health perspective. It's all part of the process. It goes back to the statement we have in our podcast group, which is now we work. Yep. Whether you nailed the result or whether you didn't nail the result. Now we go back to work. Either way, you're doing the same thing a week later. So get back to work, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It's been episode 96 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we will talk to you soon.